everyone and welcome back to four at the back not too long ago on match of the day they were having a conversation about the greatest premier league number 10s ever and that started a lot of a lot of discussion out there in on social media and the like and we got started to get drawn into this as well because the number 10 is a pretty special position in football and you know we've got a lot of affection for, for a lot of these players so we started to put our heads together and we came up with a, a little system where we could you know come up with our own lists and like compare them against each other everyone gets like a score based on the the result of the various lists and i've got maz here with, with me today and we're going to go through the this list um so maz just before we go into the numbers here i mean Number 10 is a pretty special position, but it's not one we see quite so much in the same way that we used to anymore. I mean, football's kind of elided that role out of it really over the last 10 to 15 years quite a lot, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I mean, there is there aren't really any number 10s anymore, are they? You know, what what you're talking about, historically, a number 10 is your, your second striker in a 4-4-2 or maybe your third striker in a 4-3-3. Old school 4-3-3, not like these today. Today's 4-3-3s. But, you know, players who would have been a number 10, you know, back in the day today, generally you'll find them as a more of a number 8, a number 7, number 11 a day, aren't they? You know, they're they're either playing wide off the striker rather than centrally off the, the main striker or, or they're playing deeper in the midfield. It, it's, it's a changing game. But what that does for for a list like this, it makes it a lot more controversial. I think if you you did this ten years ago, even you wouldn't get a great deal of, uh, of controversy. I think most people that would pop up would be a number ten, even if their their shirt number said otherwise, you know. But now, certainly, you know, you, you'd think if you were playing back in the day, guys like, um, well. I think of guys who, who who are playing now at the top of their game in the Premier League. You look at Liverpool, you could probably have four of them at Liverpool. Um, you know, Salah could certainly play there. Mane could certainly play there. Firmino is not really a number nine, is he? You know, he's probably most number 10 of them all. And uh, Jota as well. You know, they, they all seem to be players who fit that position. I guess... Sterling sort of played it for England, didn't he? In the World Cup, a, a lot of the mm. times as, the, as that second striker, it, it's their son, I think, would be absolutely a number 10 back in the day, undisputed. There's a lot of players today that you that don't really play that role that you think they probably would have played that role in a different era when, you know, 4-4-2 was, was, was the vogue. Yeah, and... I don't know about you, but I've kind of taken that into account when I came up with my my list. I was looking more at people who were what you might call out and out tens rather than free eights or whatever the modern equivalent might be, or you know the wingers that might drift inside. So it might give it yeah. in my in my case, it might give it a slightly nineties slant. I don't know about you. I weighted mine towards the fact that if they if there are a number ten who played the number ten position in their career they got higher up whereas I took consideration for players that certainly are of that number 10 model but played less like a number 10 during their career you know I I, I weighted it I weighted them down um, due to that however you know I still think they certainly deserve consideration a lot of these guys so 
we always used to say that we are shaky on the facts on this podcast and appropriately enough we have managed to through all the various ties cram 17 people into a top 10 list which is just perfectly on brand for us so I'll, I'll start us off then at the bottom which has our first tie joint 10th on our list coming in here were paulo de canio and felipe coutinho they just about creep in at the bottom there a couple of players that definitely uh definitely exciting aren't they mm. one's probably a little bit louder than the other but um yeah. they both lit up the premier league at, at certain points uh in in their careers and yeah i mean um fantastic players the pair of them i mean you're you're seeing a lot of one of them at the moment yes yeah although i think he's probably just made it in here more for that spell with liverpool where you know he had suarez and sturridge and, and whatnot playing alongside him and that, that made that massive transfer to barca but even in the little spell at villa we've seen that he is and a scorer of fantastic goals if nothing else uh wonderful creative talent very much in that old brazilian number 10 kind of mold uh and if you're talking about scorers of brilliant goals I mean that's the one thing that really does stand out about De Canio isn't it you, you remember some of his efforts 25 yeah. years later yeah uh, definitely an exciting player and um, one who uh, yeah had had a, his share of controversial moments we can certainly say but yeah was <laughs> on his day was an absolute talent you certainly are more likely to want him to play for your team than invite him around for dinner I think Yes, yes. Yeah, he wouldn't. He'd probably bring half of the Lazio Ultras with him. (laughs) Let's not talk about the West Ham Ultras, but yeah. No, quite. Um, Just ahead of those uh, on his own in ninth place, uh, a similar figure in many ways. Matt Letizia coming at number nine. uh, The man who pretty much single-handedly kept Southampton in the Premier League through the 1990s. Yes, world-renowned conspiracy theorist Matthew Letizia. I used well, to say to see that, how mental he's gone, but yeah, I know. I always used to say in the nineties that he was such a good footballer. It was like he had brains in his feet. Like, unfortunately, they have turned out to be the only brains that he has. <laughs> yeah, he, he he's got to have somewhere. But you know, we're not here to talk about uh, no. Uh, but today, we're here to talk about the exceptional player that he was. You know, the talent Sup- that he was. Supremely I mean, cultured. Yeah, he's the type of player that you have to be there pretty much because you don't see anything about him. He never played for a a big club, spent his career at Southampton, scored the most ridiculous goals on a consistent basis. You know, he it it was like the the match of the day goal of the month song was his theme tune. And that that would have been Life O'Reilly, I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I hear Life O'Reilly, all I can think about is Letitia just doing his magic and as a player often got called lazy fair maybe maybe fair maybe not fair it's hard to say when you've got a talent like that it it's hard to say what makes them tick you know if he wasn't or if he didn't seem as nonchalant as he as he came across would he would he have been as good and the fact that we never saw him get that forever rumored uh chelsea i think were the main team that were often linked with him weren't they uh chelsea and spurs tended to be the two that i used to hear yeah, yeah, it just it it never happened for whatever reason, and whatever the reason, I don't think it was because of his talent. It, it, he was just an exceptional player. He was Southampton during that time, yeah, and just yeah, uh, one of those players that's an absolute joy to watch. Yeah, yeah, he 
just used to light up games with just moments of really kind of incredible stuff and and there's this kind of narrative that none of that really kind of happened until like foreign imports brought it into the game and obviously they did bring quite a lot when they came but there were guys like Letizia who were already doing it and were playing that kind of role and that accusation about being kind of lazy is something that dogs number 10s quite a lot in this period because they didn't really have much in the way of defensive duties to do you know the, the number nine might be encouraged to put himself about quite a lot but the number 10 was supposed to just kind of pick up space and uh, obviously that's one of the reasons why the role doesn't have quite the same importance anymore that it, than it used to yeah yeah no absolutely it's uh could often be seen as a luxury player, couldn't they, the yeah. number 10? And I guess in, in today's game where there's so much fitness, so much running, so much uh, a different level of, of of physicality, I guess, would, would be the, the way to put it. You know, you, you can't really afford a, a, a drifter no. so much. So I, I'm, I'm sure there's a certain player that might pop up on this list that um, plenty would be, we'll have plenty to say on. As it goes on, so let's let's carry on. I'm sure we'll get to him eventually. All right. So coming in at joint eight, we have two rather different players here: Christian Eriksen and Joe Cole. And I'm guessing, obviously, there's no notes on this, but I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I, I'm guessing that Joe Cole is here more for his time as an out and out number ten at West Ham when he was the you know one to watch, the most exciting young English talent in inverted commas, rather than the winger Joe Cole that you later got at Chelsea. I'm fingering it's that young, you know, tabloid obsession, this guy's going to lead us to the World Cup era, uh, rather than what came later. And that the, makes the, him a very the, different the old, let, Let's play him on the left wing, because nobody else has got, nobody's got a left foot in our whole, whole squad uh, for England, Joe Cole. Yeah. Yeah, that era. I mean, and the tragedy of that was that he still actually managed to outplay people playing in their proper positions, right? Yep, he certainly <laughs> did. He he certainly he delivered, didn't he? Strange one, Joe Cole. It really is a strange one. He was he as good as he could have been. Probably didn't quite hit that height, despite winning a lot of stuff and playing at a very high level. You know, like you say, if he played that 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 number 10 role throughout his career, how good of a number 10 would he be? I guess, you know, he's the type of, he's the player who probably just came right at the wrong era for it because, yeah. you know, he came as it was changing, as the as the game was changing. So, yeah, like you say, coming up at West Ham in that role and then suddenly he's pretty much utility forward, isn't he, for the rest of his career, which, is, so. which he was very good at wherever you stuck him. But, you know, Never maybe quite the absolute tip-top world-class player he might have been had he stuck to a position. But, you know, fundamental, fundamentals of the game, excellent talent, really good player, really good career. You can't really say he didn't have success. No. And he did set the league on fire for that little spell when he was, what, 17, 18 years old and, you know, everybody was talking about him. I was just oh, thinking... Yeah, he was... Hot, hot at that point you know we, we've had a few players like that over the years and yeah, yeah he's certainly one of the standouts I was just thinking when you were saying that if because I agree 100% I think this is an era thing and he did very well to adapt to play in those Mourinho teams but I'm just thinking if the era hadn't changed and he'd allowed, been able to grow into being a kind of number 10 as he would have done if he'd come along 10 years earlier he could have been the English equivalent of say Roberto Baggio you know that's I, I, that's 
high praise, I know, but that may have been the way the career ended up going, rather than just a very competent utility forward, as you say, whose career was kind of over earlier than it otherwise should have been. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's fair. He, he could have been that 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 level of player for England, you know, especially in that generation that, that he was. But you know, he got kind of overshadowed by by the whole Jer- Gerard Lampard debate, and mm. uh, you know, I, I, I think he's coming through now. Honestly, I'd have him well above Mel and Foden <laughs> as a level of talent, you know, to be seen, obviously, with Foden, and that's uh, that. That's there, still a young lad and, and, and a long way to go. But yeah, you know, it's more exciting for me. I've never quite seen that level that I saw in a young show Cole in, in Foden yet. Mm. I mean, certainly if we're going to talk about excitement, he would have them both beaten hands down. The other name, obviously, that came up there was Christian Eriksen, which is kind of an interesting one because he is very much a utility. You can see him either flank, you can see him as a 10, you can see him as a kind of free eight, really kind of, has played everywhere at some point or another, both for in the Premier League for Tottenham and for Brentford, but also, you know, for his national team and in Italy as well. So very talented. Yeah, good, very good player. Very good, very good player. Yeah, I see him as an eight more than anything else. But like I say, eight is one of those positions that, you know, would have been, a, could could well have been a 10, you know, back in the day. And he's he certainly got the attributes that that all those good number 10s do have. So, yeah, moving us on, uh, this one might be interesting for you. We may gloss over this quite quickly. And number seven on his own, Mesut Ozil. There we go. There's the guy I was looking for I mean, a few moments ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, an enigma. Mesut Ozil, it's a strange thing to say around Arsenal fans because they all seem to have very, very strong opinions on him. Either way. Which, uh, you know, kind of sums up the Arsenal fan base. So I'm kind of in the middle on it. I think he's an exceptional player on his day. Yeah, yeah, he don't run around that much. Certainly what you, you'd say, your old school number 10, but probably does uh, more 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 than it shows on the pitch. Uh, is he a luxury player? Yes, probably a little bit, but if you've got good enough players around him, you can afford that luxury. Ask some of the best players in the world, would, do they want to play with Mesut Ozil? And you'll get a, a resounding yes. You ask the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and players like that. Absolute assist machine. Certainly, certainly an old school 10. Could play him wide, sure, but does his business best of all in, in, in that position off, off, a, off a striker or off two strikers. So, yeah, he's certainly a number 10. He's certainly got that skill, that talent, that vision to open up a game as much as some of the best number 10s that have ever graced the Premier League. How he's seen by people is very, very different. If Neil was here, he'd be singing the praises right now. It's an, an, an enigma, certainly, Meza Ozil, but, you know, an extremely talented one. It is all really to do with Arsenal, where his reputation soured, if you like, because he came in with tremendous fanfare in 2014. I believe he just won the World Cup and had I'd got rave reviews uh, in the World Cup and was one of the most respected of the great German team of that era. Comes in, does quite well for three or four seasons at Arsenal, and then it's almost like the the wheels fall off. Was it? I don't know. I mean, what's the, what is the question? Was it something like something just went in his head and he didn't have the motivation anymore? Or I I I, I don't think it's him. I don't think it's him. I think there was there was a fallout. 
the managers certainly didn't fancy him as much, you know, Wenger. It, it's not not really a Wenger type of player, as much as he is a Wenger type of player in what he can do with a football. In terms of Wenger's ball players, always quite physical. I think it's probably, you know, Wenger's switch from big, strong guys in that midfield area to, you know, your, your more technical players. And, you know, it's something that plays, something we've discussed before on the show. But, you know, it, it's someone that weren't really up. You know, even when you look at some of the other players we, we've had in there, smaller technical players, but always up for a bit of argy-bargy. If you go back to Burkamp, obviously, and then as we go through, even, you know, your Fabregas's, your Cazorla's, they weren't shy at, at getting in there with, with players. And I think, even look at Wilshire. You know, he injured himself every time he did go in for a bloody tackle, but he, it never stopped him. <laughs> um, you know, and I think maybe as the team started to fall off a little bit, not quite so guaranteed that top four position anymore and having to fight for it a bit harder. People look towards our, our top players and, and what they were doing and the microscopes on them a bit more. And, you know, if if one is being seen as not really sticking his foot in, it's not something we really like at Arsenal. It's always a bit of grit first, which is, you know, why we love the righties and the Burkamps of this world, because as you know, as talented as they were, they weren't they were never afraid to mix it up. Maybe when things started to not go so well for the club, Ozil was an easy scapegoat there. But probably a bit of both. Like I say, I do play the middle ground on that. Uh, you know, I, I think he's either seen as being very hard done by by Arsenal or, you know, Arsenal being very hard done by by him. And I don't think I don't think it's that simple by any stretch of the imagination. Now, there's an interesting kind of narrative out there as well, that actually it's a bit of a to do with the change in coach and that he'd had injuries and so on at the, towards the end of the Wenger era. And that had kind of hurt his form. But actually, the real fallout comes when Emery comes in. And obviously, the after 20 odd years, there's going to be a huge amount of, you know, turnover and just getting. We saw it with Man United, right? And we're still seeing it, you know, at the end of the Ferguson era. And maybe then a player like that does become more of a luxury. And maybe that's part of it, too. And, you know, he probably didn't take to being thought of as a luxury by his coach very well. Maybe. No, I think that's very, very fair and, and and probably spot on and a big part of it. You know, that said, he's not set the world on fire since he's left us either. So it's, uh, again, maybe the type of player that as time's gone on is just not quite the same fit anymore in, in world football. Yeah, maybe. And the other thing to say is that when he was falling up with his coach, Emery, criticised his motivation. He was 29, he'd won the World Cup. He wouldn't be the first player to kind of lose interest once he'd won it all. And that would, you know, he's approaching 30 by that point. Maybe that's got something to do with it as well. Uh, anyway, let's move on because we've still got quite a few players to get through with all the various ties. Uh, and we've got a three-way tie for number six. Juninho, Peter Beardsley and Paul Scholes. It's an interesting batch of players. Yeah, it's uh, it's not what you'd want on the other side if you you're on blind date, is it? Um, <laughs> Janino might do all right in that. Yeah, you, you'd hope <laughs> Janino wouldn't you of that bunch. It, it's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, Paul Scholes, towards the end of his career, moved backwards and became a deeper and deeper midfield player, became more of an out-and-out eight, but started out really quite far forward for for Man United. And for England, he was a goal-scoring machine until they tried to fit Gerrard into the team. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, in terms of his career, I do think of Scholes as, as an eight in his career, but he certainly did play that 10 quite a bit you know when needed later on but certainly in his early days he was he was a lot more of a you know, second striker yeah type player and uh yeah very 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 good at it you know it, it's just like pretty much everything but tackling um yes yes Paul skulls is very very good at certainly certainly deserves a spot in the 10 in my mind even though that's not where i primarily see him um, yeah, yeah, just a fantastic football player, Scalzi. It is interesting to think that he could be on a list of your top ten number tens and a list of your top ten Premier League number eights, and it's not controversial. No, not not at all. And you know, he, he's probably you know he's certainly top three mm. <laughs> if we ever do do a number eight one. And you know, there's a big big chance that that he tops that list. So Beardsley, um, and I, mean, I suppose Beardsley's the one that probably flies under the radar for the younger fans because as exceptional as he was into the first few years of the Premier League, he was already getting on by then. Yeah, yeah. He's certainly, he's, uh, well, you know, if you want a classic old school number 10, look no further for, than Peter Beardsley, just a, an exceptional talent. It was always, you know, a dribbling machine. Back in the day, and and just how would you describe him? He's to be fair, he's touch of the messies about him, hasn't he? Really? Yeah. If, if you yeah. go back, that you is know, the comparison. Uh, very, very, very much. Uh, what Messi is good at, Beardsley was good at. Now, I'm not saying he's quite. He was quite at Messi's level there, because that's if anyone's been at Messi's level. There's probably only three or four ever in ever to play the game, but you know he was a very very similar style of player. Low center of gravity, would dribble around you like you weren't there, and could bang in a goal, could set up an assist. Uh, you know he, he had it. You know he had that that end product, and he had that uncanny ability to be able to dribble past you. So you know that's that's a very very good attributes to have him. You know? in a number 10, and, and Bielo was certainly that. And as popular as Faustino Aspria was in Newcastle, there is a fairly convincing narrative that it's breaking up the Beardsley-Ferdinand axis that actually costs Newcastle the title in the long run because the goals do start to dry up a little bit. And the amount he created for, well, for Andy Cole first and then for Les Ferdinand after that, uh, proved that he was still good at that well into his 30s. Uh, obviously, this is coming after spells at uh, Liverpool and Everton and, and so on before that as well. Uh, and then lastly on that list is, is Janino. And this one, I, I guess, needs no explanation. The leading light of that Middlesbrough team that we spoke about quite some time ago now, I suppose. No, I there are very, very few on this list who I would, you know, hands down, this guy is a number 10 and just a number 10 straight out. And Janino is certainly one of those. Just you, you mentioned uh, when talking about Coutinho, the old Brazilian number ten. I mean, yeah, this guy, this guy was it. It was like brought him in. He was absolutely fantastic. And you know, obviously, we're talking about an era where 
Brazil had no shortage of that type of player. But uh, yeah, what 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 fun to watch, Janino. He he lit up the 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 English game, didn't he, for those couple of seasons? And it it was magic. It was just a little magician. Just really 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 fun to watch. There was a moment a few years later where Villa were apparently on the verge of bringing him back to the Premier League, and I can't remember why the deal fell apart. But can you imagine how much fun it would have been to have him back again, playing in a team with you know the likes of Paul Merson? Uh, would have been superb. And Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that showed how good he was was uh, towards the end of the career playing for Brazil, and they did drop him back, and he was able to play as a kind of second pivot. And you don't think of Janinho in, in that kind of holding role, but he was still actually ridiculous uh a tremendous talent all around no uh, yeah as long as he's not having to put his foot in that much you know he, he's got that range hasn't he range of passes so yeah later and, years dropping back i mean he probably had more success in on an international level later in his career than he did earlier i think so yeah i, I would have thought without actually looking at it you know he certainly wasn't a you know an ever present during his, his borough days was he but later on he he did get back in there and was, you know, quite a prominent won, part of the team. And won the World Cup. And won the World Cup, as you do. Yeah, if you're Brazilian, or it did back then anyway. It's been a while now. So we're moving into the top five, and this is the the naughty bit before it all starts to get clear, because we have a four-way tie for number five. I think you're going to have opinions here. Me? Yeah, yeah, because uh, they're a bit all over the place. So we'll, we'll work out what you think. We've got Wayne Rooney, Eden Hazard, David Silva, and Kevin De Bruyne, all with the same score and coming in at number five. Sure, that, that don't surprise me. They're all fantastic players. Are any of them a number 10? Not really. Do... So I'm, I'm looking at it. They're, I think they're all a little bit cursed by the utility tag, but they've all sort of played 10 at various points as well. Yeah, they all absolutely have the ability to play 10. They all have played 10. You know, I don't think of any of them really as a 10. Hmm uh you know as what they played through their career but you know they they all without a doubt have a skill set to do that mm. uh, really got the joe cole thing where where when he was younger he was more of a 10 because that through, certainly through everton the 2004 2006 world cups the first couple of years at man united i think of him more as a 10 and then as time went on he sort of fit into the united team wherever he was needed and eventually became an out and out striker but up until the age of about 21, 22, I think of him as a 10. I wonder if that's the same as the Joe Cole thing where he got moved as football changed and as Man United evolved to become that that 2008 Champions League winning team. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd be the same as you there. I think as far as classic number 10s go, you're probably, Rooney's probably the one. And I think I put him quite high up this list mm. uh, on, on, on mine um, for his rankings. But because of that, because I think, for me, he is. He has everything you need for a second striker. You know, you, you don't necessarily think of Rooney as a finesse number ten. You know, not necessarily doing twirls and uh, that kind of thing. But you know, uh, second striker to me. You know, like say those early days, he very much was a ten as a youngster, and because he's such a good goal scorer, I guess he he became more of that number nine, didn't he? Whereas others kind of drifted and became more of the, the the wider strikers or the support strikers but you know he's played off off a nine quite often in his career as well you know he's played off those goal scorers mm. so yeah you know I, I think even though he didn't play a great deal of his career as a 10 he certainly has all those number 10 attributes and 
if he was 10 years younger, he probably would have spent most of his career at number 10. And just to cover the other three quickly, I'm guessing Hazard, Silva, more wingers, and then De Bruyne, more of a kind of number eight. And if it wasn't for the, that fact, they might be able to challenge higher, but not really enough time as proper tens, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I'm not sure. If if those three played in the 90s, I think they're still eight sevens or 11s. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and the way their careers are, have, have shaped out at points, they've been the absolute bright, brightest, most talented player in the team, which is what you expect from a number 10 historically, don't you really? And that that is often probably how some people w- would would rate a number 10. And, you know, there's certainly players that can do it centrally. I mean, you know, De Bruyne obviously is a central player, uh, just a bit deeper, you know, certainly more of an eight, but could play that 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 role a bit a bit further forward. You know, Hazard, more of a winger, but has played his fair share of football centrally and been absolutely the best player in the league when, when he's done it at points. And you could probably say the same for Silver as well. So with that said, we're now moving on to the area where I think there's going to be a little bit less congestion and maybe a bit less controversy as well. At number four, we have Teddy Sheringham, your favourite player. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's Teddy. It, he he was very, very fun to hate back in, back in the late 90s. Uh, brilliant number 10. A- again, when I look at Teddy Sheringham, that is absolutely a number 10. You know, I, I don't think of him as any other any other position apart from the, you know, second striker playing off the, the, the main strike. I know probably in his younger time, he, he was more of a nine at points. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in his career, when he actually decided it was time to win things, that was, that was it, wasn't he? He was the, uh, he, he was the uh, off striker, uh, whether it be next to Cole or Solskjaer or or York of, of that foursome that, that they had. It would always be Teddy would be the deeper of if he was playing uh, uh, of uh, of the two. And um, off Shearer for England, of course. Off Shearer for England as well uh, for a long time, and you know off quite a lot of players for Spurs as well. Yeah, Klinsman's probably the one where he first starts to move back, isn't it? Because as you yeah. said, more more of a target man before that. He, he had a great reputation as as a header of a ball, uh, but as time comes, Klinsman becomes more the focal point. Once they ditch that hilariously wonderful five man attack, yeah, Sheringham drops deeper. It, it's weird because he, you know, he looks like a number nine. <laughs> you know, like you say, he's a good header of the ball. He's a big guy, but he he's got the feet. You know, he's got the feet and a lot of number nines don't have the feet that, that Sheringham's got or or the brain necessarily. They might have that striker's instinct, that poacher's instinct to be in the right place at the right time, but not the vision to see the whole game that, that, that Sheringham's got. He's too smart of a footballer player to be up the top with nobody in front of him. You know, and I think that was probably seen at some point during his his career and his ability to open the game up and, and, and find players and see what's happening and knowing where to be and where, where his partner should be was, you know, probably a very, very under, oh gosh, I feel sick saying it, but a very underrated player in Premier League history. I think spotting that was why he eventually became the man to replace the number three on our list at Man United, which is Eric Cantona, who 
yeah, obviously hasn't come in the top two here, but probably did more than than anybody to open up the idea of you know playing between the lines and number ten uh, type forwards or, or in in the Premier League era. Uh, there obviously were people doing that role through the 1980s. You know, we just spoke about Beardsley, but Cantona's the one that really changed the perception of it to a degree. I mean, yeah, would 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 Cantona be number number one on this list if he wasn't so hand in hand with the number seven it's a weird little thing but you know that that perception might be might I think, be it mm, i mean maybe i think what maybe knocks him down a touch is that the fixed roles hadn't quite materialized at man united so him and hughes would swap and yeah. although he dropped between the lines sometimes he would be playing further forward than hughes and playing as a kind of straight nine and that made them very difficult to play against uh, it was quite quite modern in a sense but it made him less of an out and out number 10 than the two that i'm actually looking at it's just finished above him so forgets the points here for innovation i think rather than being set in the role but yeah, a wonderful, yeah. wonderful player yeah no no an, an immense talent like you say you know he probably drifted more into that number nine role than than other players but you know he's certainly a player i see as primarily a a number 10 and yeah i mean just the innovator of the Premier League, those early years in the Premier League, he was he was the star. Okay, so we're moving into the top two here. I don't think there's going to be too many surprises. Uh, number two, Gianfranco Zola. That's a number ten. You know, yeah. we're talking an era where, you know, we, we talked about Brazilian number tens. You touched on one Italian number ten earlier, but you know, this era of Italian number tens, they it it, it was. It, it was just a thing. It was Italy just produced so many of these players around this period of time, from Mancini to Baggio to Del Piero to Totti, and right in the middle of that era is, is Zola. And all those players, in my mind, are just number ten, number ten, number ten, number ten. Um, I don't know if it, if it's the way they're brought up in Italy, the way Italian football is played. I guess certainly more defensive so your your number 10 is probably your main your more creative player because you've got two sitters in midfield or three as opposed to a bit more adventurous uh leagues but yeah i guess your number 10 being your your main creative player rather than your number eight say but yeah certainly the tradition of italians in there is is great and zola was just you know certainly not the highest profile Italian number 10 dur- during his period, probably at any, at any point, but, you know, he came to, came to England at a very important moment for the Premier League and lit, lit the league up with his talent and, you know, his flair, his ability to, uh, to play with the football. And yeah, he was an amazing player to watch. He got caught up as well in that, kind of cultural battle going on in the 1990s that also embroiled the likes of Baggio and Del Piero, where the number 10 is that vaunted Italian position that all the kids want to be growing up, where you have the freedom to to go out and play your game. But I guess inspired by the Saki Milan team that we covered way back in season one, that position was seen as excessive and something that you could or had to do without. So he wasn't really that appreciated in Italy and it's only by coming to the Premier League which was freer uh, and allowed a lot more space 
around and you know there was there was room for a player like that to flourish and he obviously became probably the biggest Chelsea legend of of his era and yeah you're looking at guys like Terry and Lampard if you want to put him in the same sort of bracket as as the more modern players who actually went on to win the league and so on uh, but Zola's a huge part of raising the profile of Chelsea to the likes of the point where a, a Roman Abramovich would have been interested in them in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's something that's important to say, and you know, Chelsea are Chelsea, so people like to rag on them and, and talk about Chelsea before the uh, the Abramovich money. But you know, in the in the old uh, in, in that era, they really were starting to come up, and you know, so many big names coming through that club. You know, maybe the likes of Fiali and Bullet not in their absolute prime, but we're, we're talking about huge megastar names here in football and uh, they were bringing him in they were making signings and Zola obviously knew of him as as a Palmer player and uh, uh, as an Arsenal fan we'd seen uh, we'd beaten them in the Cup of the Cup final a couple of seasons prior and you know obviously we're talking about the era of uh, uh, of Gazeta de la Sport uh, being on TV um, old uh, what's his name James Richardson. Oh, now. James Richardson reads it, reading it every week, and yeah. <laughs> on, usually eating a massive and, cake. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, it it was the second league that people in the UK followed. Yeah, the at, big at Italian players were as big names as the big Premier League players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, we, we're talk, we're not talking a day where you can watch every league in the world on 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 Sky. You know, no. we're talking about it, you were watching. You're watching the Prem, the old first division, uh, and, you know, a, a bit of that. And then, of course, Channel 4 had had this uh, Italian stuff on, you know, built, mainly built off uh, Paul Gascoigne going over there, which is what yeah. generated the interest. But, you know, it, it was at that point, it was the best league in the world at, at that point. You know, uh, La Liga was, was still on a bit of a climb at that point. They weren't quite quite there. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, they had a, a lot of good players there. It wasn't a farmer's league by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, the Italian league was, was where it was at. That's where the biggest megastars were. And it, it, it's only really the growth, probably at the late late 90s, of um, Barcelona and, and Milan starting to put together the Galacticos that, that that's shifted probably to Spain. Yeah, and that's when we start to get... TV companies interested in the rights of Spanish football and and everything kind of takes off from there. Uh, speaking of the Italian league, a number one is no surprise, another distressed Italian asset uh, that came over from Inter Milan. Uh, it's a man you know very well, having watched him for several years. Dennis Bergkamp was the runaway winner of the greatest Premier League number 10s on our list. I, I like to be objective and say... You know, I'd like to think that if I thought that there was another player that was better than Burkamp at number 10, I, I would have gladly admitted it. But, you know, I don't, I don't think there is. And I, I generally don't think that's anything to do with um, having the absolute joy of sitting there watching him every week, having a Arsenal T-shirt with 10 God on the back. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, again, uh, Burkamp joined Arsenal the year I got a season ticket so he is very much the he he's the number 10 that that, that defined my fandom uh, if, if you like the peak of my fandom the, the biggest years of my fandom and we're talking a time where there were Zolas around Cantona was still just about about you know 
we had Jardinio coming in around this time. However, you know, for me, they can't touch Burkamp. Burkamp is just such a joy to watch, such a brilliant player. He, he had it all, the skill. He could score absolute screamers. You know, he could pop a pass on a, a right in front of, of your striker. Listen, uh, right or or Henri talk about Burkamp, and you know you'll see just how important he was for them as the number nines during his time as a as a ten. And yeah, just the magic man himself. He's just amazing footballer to watch, and did it for Holland as well. And you know they're unlucky they they didn't win anything during that era. Yeah, you're right. They had some tremendous players, and obviously the infighting is is infamous, and we'll probably cover that Holland team at some point. But yeah, I mean, even the infighting when you talk about, it, you look at how unlucky they were in '98. You know, they were a shootout away from playing France in the final. You're talking about fine margins here, and yeah, would that yeah. France team have been beaten in that final by anyone? Probably not. On that day, they were just on a different level in a different gear. But you know. It, it was that close and yeah they absolutely have had invite in being be absolute play but you know they they were very very close in 98 going all the way yeah they were they were they could have won it there that's probably the chance that that got away and maybe Euro 2000 as well I guess when you think of you know a lot of that team was still around or the starting to age out perhaps um I don't know of a better way to to finish that than you know the way you just said their magic man because that's kind of what Burkamp was for a lot of that spell, you know, some of the stuff he did was just outrageous and is very much the man who came in and defined what a number 10 could be in the English game in the 1990s, you know. So, yeah, I think that's a, as good a place to wrap it up as any. He was the runaway winner, almost the unanimous pick of us at four at the back. Uh, if you think we've missed anybody out, you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at Twitter at 4ATBpod. Please let us know uh, what you think of the list. Uh, 17 great players, I'm sure you'll agree, but I'm sure there's probably some that you think we've left off as well. We'll be I'm, back. I'm going to Sorry. tweet myself now um, about my absolute disgust at not putting Paul Merson on my list anywhere. He was very close to making it on mine, uh, and that's just from the Villa spell, never mind uh, the Arsenal stuff earlier on. So, yeah, it's uh, what a player. Right, we will be back later on in the summer with another one of these bonus episodes. Uh, Hope you'll join us for that when it comes out. Uh, Until next time, we'll see you soon.